0: Who is the 1888 message study committee? And believe it or not, we're a very small (laughs) kind of ragtag group of uh, mostly lay members, um, a few physicians, a few pastors, but people from all around the world who have had their hearts warmed by a message, a message that was first given back in 1888. So there's a lot of history in this message. And uh, why are we here? Why are we here now? Well just let me read a quote from Testimonies to Ministers, page 91, I'm sure you're gonna hear this several times over the course of the next three days. The Lord in his great mercy sent a most precious message to his people through elders Wagner and Jones. This message was to bring more prominently before the world the uplifted savior the sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. It presented justification through faith in the surety, and it invited the people to receive the righteousness of Christ, which is made manifest in obedience to all the commandments of God. Many had lost sight of Jesus. They needed to have their eyes directed to his divine person, his merciful and his changeless love for the human family. All power is given into his hands, that he may dispense rich gifts unto men, imparting the priceless gift of his own righteousness to the helpless human agent. This is the message that God commanded to be given to the world. This is the message that the world needs to hear. And the reason we're here as lay people, as pastors, as physicians, as people coming together, is to Prepare our church, to prepare the Battle Creek Tabernacle, to prepare each of us around the world that are tuning into this message to be able to give this very message to the world. And Ellen White says, It is the third angel's message, which is to be proclaimed with a loud voice and attended with the outpouring of his spirit in a large measure. We believe that it's this very message. When received by faith into each of our hearts, that actually brings with it the, latter, the, the, the last showers of the latter rain. And it joins with a loud cry as it goes to the whole world. This is the message that is the prophetic call through the three angels' messages to prepare for times like these. Well,
1: our theme is, it's midnight, time for a most precious message. Notice there's two time elements mentioned there, midnight and time. And as we spend our time together tonight, I'm hoping that we can see how 1888 fits in the prophetic flow of history and that God was trying to accomplish something very significant and very unique. A lot of times we sort of feel like 188 just sort of hangs out there, um, uh, isolated from a bunch of important things in Adventist history. But I think as we look at the prophetic history, we'll see how significant that 1888 time frame is. So um, when we think about it, uh, God has been trying since uh, the time of Christ to finish up the great controversy. And there's two major events that we understand as Adventists in history. The cross, 2,000 years ago, and 1844, and then we'd say, well, where does 1888 fit in the significance relative to those two events? And I want us to see tonight that God has put us in a position with this message to, to understand that there's something very, very significant that's accomplished there, and it, it fits in the prophetic timeline. That's what I want us to see tonight. How significant that time and that message was in the prophetic timeline. So a chance to finish the great controversy, it's it's easy to ask sometimes, well, why didn't God just finish the great controversy after the cross? We'd seen the nature of sin, what sin does. We'd seen the heart of Satan, we'd seen our hearts in response to God. We'd seen all of those elements, and it seems like that would have been enough for God to say, okay, we can wrap things up now. But that way, it gives us some insight here that there were still issues unresolved. This is from Desire of Ages, page 763, the chapter "It Is Finished." This is talking about immediately after the cross, and says Satan was not then destroyed. We might think, like, well, this would be the time, right? We've seen Satan's heart, we've seen God's love for us, we've seen what sin does. Now it's time to move on and get rid of Satan. So the angels did not even then understand all that was involved in the great controversy. More to be understood in the great controversy than was revealed and clarified at the cross. Even the angels didn't understand all. The principles at stake, remember there's two great principles fighting for supremacy in every controversy. The principle of self-sacrificing love and truth on God's side and the principle of self-preservation and selfishness on Satan's side. The principles at stake were to be more fully revealed. And for the sake of man, Satan's existence must be continued. Man, as well as angels, must see the contrast between the prince of light and the prince of darkness. He must choose whom he will serve. So, even though there was significant clarity at the cross, All the issues at stake had not been resolved. And God was forced to continue this long experiment for us to see what these other issues were. Now, this is brought out in 1 Peter. Remember, 1 Peter was written post-cross. Now notice what Peter says in 1 Peter. I'm not going to read the whole passage, but he says basically, salvation and grace, the sufferings of Christ and the glory to be revealed are things which angels desire to look into." So he lists several things, and he says these are the things that the angels are processing and trying to understand. If you desire to look into something, the implication is clear, right? You don't currently understand all that is involved with that issue. So Peter mentions salvation, he mentions grace, he mentions the sufferings of Christ. And he mentions in reference to us the glory, the character that's still to be revealed. And he said these are things which angels desire to look into. So God couldn't finish the great controversy at Calvary. So there's a flow to salvation history. God has certain things that need to be accomplished in order to secure the universe for all eternity. Now, I'm not aware of any time prophecy that includes 1888 in it. In fact, we're told in Revelation chapter 10 that time or delay would be no longer. All the time prophecies that we've studied out of Seventh day Adventists and people even before Seventh day Adventists, all those time prophecies ended in 1844. So there's no time prophecy that points to 1888. But as we're going to see here in a few minutes, it does fit into the prophetic flow of history in a very significant way. Because think about Revelation 14, right, the three angels' messages. Once the third angel's message is given, what's the next event? What's that last part of Revelation 14 that we don't quote very much? It's the reaping, it's the second coming, right? So we, we too often stop at the three angels' messages not realizing that there's a second coming after that and a fourth angel's message. So 1844, the Day of Atonement, the Cleansing of the Sanctuary, the Investigative Judgment, all these things occurred at the beginning of 1844. Well then what's this 1888 thing stuck on the end? And just like the disciples back in the early century um, of our, our world's history, They lost their first love, so our early Seventh-day Adventist pioneers lost their first love. The Millerites didn't appreciate and didn't understand all that was happening in 1844, just like the disciples didn't understand and appreciate all that was happening when Jesus died on the cross and was resurrected. So 1888 was 90 years after the end of the 1260 prophecy, 1798. No time prophecy that really covers 90 years. was 44 years after the 2300-day prophecy. And no 44-year prophecies. So it doesn't fit into the time prophecies. But it fits into another prophetic line of history. Let's look for a minute, though, what happened in 1844. Because, again, if the next thing in Revelation chapter 14, after the third angel's message is the second coming, there shouldn't have been a long gap between the giving of the third angel's message and the second coming. That's the next thing in the chapter. Revelation chapter 10 tells us there should be delay no longer. Once that seventh angel sound and the mystery of God is finished, Christ in us, the hope of glory, once that happens, time shouldn't be any longer. Ellen White says this in the 18 Materials, and she's referring back now to 1844. She says, the passing of the time in 1844 was a period of great events opening to our astonished eyes Again, something new to their astonished eyes, the cleansing of the sanctuary transpiring in heaven. They realized that all that was involved in wrapping up with this great controversy wasn't just happening down here on planet earth. But, she says, it did have a, quote, decided relation to God's people on earth. So there are events transpiring in heaven that have a decided relationship to what's happening here on earth. then she mentions also the first, second angel's message is in the third, unfurling the banner on which was inscribed, the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. So in 1844, as that time passed, and they were saying, what happened? After the third angel's message, the second coming is the next event. What happened? They began to realize, she says, to their astonished eyes, there was a sanctuary cleansing going on in heaven, and it had decided a relation to God's people here on earth a relationship, a correlation that they had not appreciated before. She goes on and says, and this is a great controversy, for the intercession of Christ in man's behalf in the sanctuary above is as essential to the plan of salvation as was his death upon the cross. Think about that for a second. The intercession of Christ in man's behalf in the sanctuary above is as essential to the plan of salvation as was his death upon the cross. What he's doing right now that bears decided relationship to us is as important, as essential, she says, to the plan of salvation as was his death on the cross. Well, let's look for a minute at this 18.8 message in the prophetic flow of history. Now, as I said, I don't find anywhere, and I've not heard anybody really share in a cogent way how 1888 fits in the flow of the time prophecies. But it does fit in the flow of the sanctuary service. It does fit in the flow of the sanctuary service. Now, just we know about all these festivals that were occurring in Jewish history. Now, we just want to remind ourselves about them a little bit. There were seven annual festivals in the sanctuary service. The Passover, which we're familiar with, Feast of Unleavened Bread, Feast of Firstfruits, Feast of Weeks, or that's one that ends on Pentecost or the early rain, the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, we want to see if we can put salvation history in this timeline, the cross, 1844, and then where would 1888 fit in this prophetic line of history? We'll see how it all fits together. So we're going to look at what we call types and anti-types, right? There's a historical event that these ancient festivals were alluding to. And then in the New Testament era there was a type or reality to what those other events and festivals were calling attention to. So you want to see the correlation between the two and then see where where we are at in this prophetic line of history. So these anti-types are pointing to something. Now these festivals were divided up into two portions. There was three or four festivals in the spring and three festivals in the fall or autumn. And this is on a religious calendar. They had a civil calendar and a religious calendar. Just like we sort of have a regular calendar year, but we also may have an academic calendar that starts in maybe August or September. Or you may have a fiscal calendar if you're in the business world. May start in July, may start in September, may start in January. So they had a religious calendar and a civil calendar and these events are in the religious calendar. So the first event in the religious calendar was the Passover that was the 14th day of the first month of the religious calendar and that was in type the exodus right remember they came out of Egypt they sacrificed a lamb and then Paul tells us that Christ was our Passover right Christ on the cross is the anti type of that. Well the next feast in the sequence On the 15th day, so the day after Passover, the day after Calvary, was this thing called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And that was always a Sabbath. So it didn't always fall on the seventh day Sabbath, but it was always observed as a Sabbath when you'll do no work. So if it didn't fall on, if it did fall on a weekly Sabbath, they called it a high Sabbath. Um, John 19 31, which talking about uh, the day that Jesus rested on the tube, that Sabbath was a high Sabbath. So this feast of unleavened bread, on the day after Passover or the day after the crucifixion, Jesus was resting in the grave on the Sabbath, not just the seventh day Sabbath, but this 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 feast of unleavened bread that was always a Sabbath. So first festival Passover, second festival feast of unleavened bread, third festival the feast of first fruits or the wave sheaf. So this was the first. Uh, first harvest of the year, and this was the day after the previous day. So this would have been Sunday in Jesus' experience. Back in the Old Testament service, it was the first harvest. They would take the first thing that they harvested, usually barley, because that was the first harvest year was usually barley. Later in the year um, was wheat and grapes. That has significance too. It was barley, and the priest would wave that as a thank you uh, to the Lord. And that was called the wave sheaf when he would wave that. Well, we're told that Jesus was the first fruits, right? He was the first one resurrected. He was the first harvest of God in salvation history. And Christ wasn't just resurrected himself, right? We know that other people were resurrected with him at that time. And those are called the first fruits when Jesus took, we're told, captivity captive and took others with him to heaven, besides just uh, himself going up there. So these are the spring festivals. And there's one more spring festival that we're probably hopefully well aware of. So, three days in a row, right? Passover, the cross, Feast of Unleavened Bread, resting in the tomb, and the Feast of First Fruits of the Wave Sheep, the resurrection. So, type and antitype. Then the next feast was 50 days after that first of that Feast of, of the First Fruits of the Wave Sheep. 50 days from that Sunday was another feast called the Feast of Weeks, because it was seven weeks afterwards, or the harvest. And that was when Pentecost occurred, what we commonly called today the early rain. And as I mentioned before, this early harvest was usually barley, and the later harvest was wheat and grapes. Now when you go through Revelation, how often is there a harvest of barley? There's no harvest of barley uh, in the New Testament really at all, right? Every time there's a discussion about the harvest, it's a harvest of wheat or grapes. So the New Testament is calling our attention to this later harvest that was meant to occur. All right, so that's, that's sort of 2,000 years ago, all right? Now let's come up to our modern history, autumn festivals. So then there's this, in, in, the, in the Jewish time frame, then there's this time in between this, the spring festivals and the autumn festivals, and we've got this long time frame. Now, the first feast in the autumn festivals was the Feast of Trumpets. This was the first day of the seventh month. And in the civil calendar, again, there's a religious calendar, so in the civil calendar, this was the first day of the civil year, Rosh Hashanah that the, our Jewish friends still, still celebrate. But in the religious calendar, it was in the middle of the year, in the autumn. The type of that, now notice the type of this, the type of the Feast of Trumpets was, the trumpets were blown announcing 10 days later the approaching Day of Atonement. So there was a feast and a blowing of a trumpet with the specific purpose of calling people to pay attention and to begin preparing for the Day of Atonement. Now what do you imagine would be the anti-type of that, right? We know what the anti-type of the next festival is going to be, right? Well, we'd expect the anti-type, if if they're blowing a trumpet 10 days before the Day of Atonement in the Old Testament Sanctuary Service, to call people to be ready for, to pay attention to, to prepare for the Day of Atonement, we would expect in the anti-type that there would be a message or messages, trumpets being blown, to call people's attention to an approaching Day of Atonement. So Day of Atonement type was that the earthly priest would go into the sanctuary all throughout the Old Testament times on the Day of Atonement. And he wasn't there by himself doing that, right? The people weren't just sitting at home and, you know, in the hides and, uh, you know, doing their regular lives. They were doing a special work at the same time. Remember Ellen White's statement, right? That there's a special work that Jesus was doing up in heaven and it bore a decided relationship to us down here. Those two need to be brought together. And the Day of Atonement brings those together. The high priest was doing something and the people were doing something. And the anti-type, 1844, Christ cleansing the heavenly sanctuary and the people down here being cleansed also. And then the last festival, the Feast of Tabernacles or Ingathering, that was a short time after that 10th day. So Day of Atonement, 10th day of the seventh month. Short period of time later, right? It wasn't like three months later, six months later. Five days later, on the, of the Feast of Tabernacles or in-gathering. The type of that was they were, they were, you know, the Jews even today will live in tents or they would put up these branch things, these make tents and huts and things. I like, can live in those. Number one, to remind them of their wilderness wandering. But number two, that was also the final harvest of the year. And they didn't harvest barley then. They harvest wheat and grapes. Same symbolism you'll see all throughout the New Testament, especially in the book of Revelation, um, that harvesting of wheat and grapes. Well, what's the anti-type of that final ingathering, that final harvest? What's the second coming? And the final harvest of the earth. Now, so let's look at these Feast of Trumpets a little bit more. That's the important part of this. S.N. Haskell, who wrote one of the best, if not the best, books uh, on the sanctuary, uh, the most cross-centered of all the sanctuary books I've read. I've only read a half a dozen, so maybe I'm missing something. Fantastic book, tying together the sanctuary service and the cross. Now here's what he said uh, on this Feast of Trumpets. In the type, the trumpets were blown throughout Israel, warning all of the near approach of the solemn Day of Atonement. In the anti-type, We should expect a worldwide message to be given to trumpet tones, announcing the time near when the great antitypical Day of Atonement, the investigative judgment, would convene in the heavens. He goes on, beginning with years 1833 and 34. that was when William Miller uh, was commissioned as a pastor. He began his preaching in 1831, but he took a commission and left his his farming job in 1833-34. And extending down to 1844, such a message was given to the world in trumpet tones, announcing the hour of his judgment has come." Now there's more messages in these trumpets than just the first angel's message, right? There's a series of loud messages in the book of Revelation. And let's look at these messages uh, very quickly. So these are all the messages at the beginning, before 1844. The first angel's message began in the early 1830s, as we just saw with the preaching of William Miller. Um, as William Miller would go around preaching, and churches would respond or reject, by, eight, by the summer of 1844, the nominal churches were rejecting this 1844 message about the soon coming of the Lord. And they began to preach the second angel's message, Babylon is fallen is fallen. Midnight cry message began late summer of 1844. Um, this was the one where they, where they were saying, listen, this is close, we're almost at midnight. And that was that midnight cry message. Third angel's message began in the fall of 1844. And then the day of atonement. The ministry begins in October 22, 1844. That's that sixth of seven festivals. And then what should have happened next? What's the next in the sequence? It's that feast, right? It's that feast of tabernacles, that ingathering. That should have come right after that. The second coming should have followed. Just like Revelation 14, right? 13 angel's message, second coming. Sequence of messages with the trumpets, day of atonement, second coming. But we know that's not what happened, is it? Because here we are in 2020. So the delay necessitated more messages. The Laodicean message began in the early 1850s, and I'll point this out in just a second, some my white quotes. And then the loud cry, the fourth angel's message began in the mid to late 1880s. Ellen White says that this message, the loud cry message, the fourth angel's message of Revelation 18, this message is the last that will ever be given to the world. It's the last trumpet. It's the last message that will be given to the world. And the delay necessitated is giving these additional messages in this salvation history. So let's look at the Laodicean message, the Laodicean trumpet we could say. This is 1852, right? 1844, second coming should have happened quickly, but what happens? Laodicea. Many who profess to be looking for the speedy coming of Christ are cold and formal. Like the nominal churches that they but a short time since separated from. The words addressed to the Laodicean Church describe their present condition perfectly. So as Ellen White looked at where we were as a people, she could see that that Day of Atonement festival, the trumpets should have been finished before then, but because of this delay, more messages, more trumpets had to come. Had Adventists, after the great disappointment in 1844, held fast their faith and followed on unitedly in the opening providence of God, receiving the message of the third angel and the power of the Holy Spirit, proclaiming it to the world, they would have seen the salvation of God, the Lord would have wrought mightily with their efforts, the work would have been completed, and Christ would have come ere this, to receive his people to the world, to their reward. That could have been. None of us would have been here. The Battle Creek Tabernacle wouldn't have been here. The Civil War would never have happened. World War I, World War II, Vietnam, COVID, Spanish flu. All of that stuff could have not happened. Christ could have come ere this. Back there in the 1840s or early 1850s at the latest. Well, let's see how 18 fits in this flow. 1863 to 1888. 1863 was when the Adventist Church was founded. 25 years. She says, the long night of gloom is trying, but the morning is deferred in mercy because if the Master should come, so many would be found unready. God's unwillingness to have his people perish has been the reason of so long a delay. Now notice this statement now is 1868. So in 1868, just 24 years after 1844, she says we've had so long a delay already. Well, we need to process that a little bit. If 1868, that's 1844 plus 24, Is so long a delay, and if 1888 is so long a delay plus 20, right, 20 years after 1868, what would she have said in 1888 if so long a delay was 20 years before that? What would she say in 2020 if so long a delay plus 20 plus 132 Other places, he said, were years behind and we should have been in the kingdom ere this. Well, we began wandering in the wilderness just like the Jews did for 40 years. And as Ellen White looked at our situation, looked at our condition, there were some conditions that she noted that had crept into our church. James White, in 1881, just a very short time before he died, wrote this, that we need to write notice what he thought we needed to write more on we needed to write more fully the glorious subject of redemption he and Ellen White were talking they were looking back on the previous 30 plus years of their experience and they're saying we need to speak less and write more on a particular topic and the topic that he said they needed to write more on was the glorious subject of redemption and he died very shortly after that. He said, we have left out Christ and his matchless love. This is all White describing the general ambiance in Adventism in the 1880s. And again, what's the context here, right? What's going on and what's the solution to what's going on? So there's this flow of prophetic history Trumpets begin to sound, day of atonement, then the next thing should be the second coming. Because of our lack of response to that, there's a delay. God sends the message of Laodicea, 1850s, and she keeps repeating that. And then, still things aren't going in the right direction, so what's the time for? Another trumpet, another message. Because, as she says, we have left out Christ and his matchless love. And brought in theories and reasonings and preached argumentative discourses. Well common sense would say if the problem was we've left out Christ and his matchless love and we haven't written enough on the glorious subject of redemption, what do you think the solution to the problem would be? It would be more of what we would left out, right? That would seem to be common sense. Well she has more to say about our condition. As a people, we have preached the law until we are as dry as the hills of Goboa that have had neither dew nor rain. We much must preach, I'm sorry, we must preach Christ in the law. Now notice the balance, right? She doesn't say we, much pre- we must preach Christ, period, end of thought. Let's all go home after the benediction. She says, we must preach Christ, We must preach Christ in the law. Christ in the law. And what's the result of that? She says, there will be sap and nourishment in the preaching that will be as food to the famishing flock of God. Well, she goes on, other things she says, there are those who profess to serve God while they rely upon their own efforts to obey his law to form a right character and secure salvation. Their hearts are not moved by any deep sense of the love of Christ But they seek to perform the duties of the Christian life as that which God requires of them in order to gain heaven. Now, if you were to observe Adventists in the 1880s, would they be dutiful in their activities and behavior? They were performing duties, they were doing evangelism, they were writing articles. Why were they doing those things? As that which God requires of them in order to gain heaven. They had exchanged one form of self-interest in the world, where I live for myself, to a religious form of self-interest, where I do the duties of the Christian life in order to get heaven for myself, so I can live a long time and I can have a mansion, etc., 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 but it was still motivated by self-interest. One other quote, such religion, she says, is worth nothing. Such religion is worth nothing. One more. The man who attempts to keep the commandments of God from a sense of obligation merely because he is required to do so will never enter into the joy of obedience he does not obey. Now, there may be a high level of behavioral compliance in this circumstance. But they're doing it from a sense of obligation merely because they're required to do so. She doesn't say that's a poor form of obedience. There's a better form. She says that's, that's disobedience, not actually obeying. 1 John 5.3 says it this way, we quote this a lot. This is the love of God that we keep His commandments. Is that the end of the verse? We quote this a lot, right? We say, prove your love for God, give evidence of your love for God by keeping His commandments. But that's not where the verse ends. Notice the next line that John writes. And his commandments are not burdensome. So if I'm looking to my commandment keeping to prove that I have evidence that I actually do love God, even though on a subtle level I recognize that it's out of a sense of obligation merely, and this is sort of burdensome, there's two qualifications. This is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. You cannot self-generate that experience. That's the problem of legalism. You You can have the right information. You can perform the right behaviors. But you can't change your heart. Only the gospel can change your heart. Only a sense of the pardoning love of Christ can change your heart. Now the behaviors should stay the same. you still be a dutiful Christian, you'll still be obeying the commandments, but now they won't be burdensome. Your religion will shift from, I ought to do this, I should do this, I have to do this, I better do this, I didn't try hard enough, I failed again. That sort of mindset of doing religion of doing Christianity of doing Adventism that was the problem saturating us in the pre-1888 era and it manifested itself she said right in what argumentative discourses because if my experience is limited then i I'll settle for being right in an argument because at least, at least I'm right, even if I'm not very righteous. I've got my facts down, even if that's all I've got. Could the pre 1888 impasse be resolved merely by encouraging the membership to get busier doing evangelism? No. Because the busyness could be just an ongoing symptom of the problem. There's this incredible verse that Jesus says in in the book of Matthew. I never hear it quoted but it's it's something that should give us give us pause. He says to the Jews, now the Jews were evangelistic, right? Because he says to them, you travel land and sea to win one proselyte, one convert, and when you baptize them, they were doing baptisms. They were sending overseas missionaries. You travel land and sea to win one proselyte, and when you baptize him, you make him, sober words, twice the sons of hell as yourselves. It's possible to do evangelism and make people's situation worse. But that's not the only option, is it? No evangelism or evangelism making the situation worse, right? That's not the only two options. Well, I want to look briefly at the idea that what needs to happen if we'll just get busy merely and get this gospel to the world, then the end will come. And that's all that we have to do, message distribution. Matthew 24:14. This gospel of the kingdom will preach in all the world as a witness. Then the end will come. A sequence there, right? So all we need to do is distribute this message. And if we get an adequate message distribution, Jesus will come. Well, I would submit to you. I would submit to you that the early Christian church finished that commission. There's biblical and spiritual prophecy evidence that they finished the gospel commission. Colossians 1:23. We're not moved away from the hope of the gospel. That gospel which was preached to every creature under heaven. Now, when Paul says creature, he's not talking about animals and birds and right. He's talking about human beings. That gospel was preached to every creature under heaven. Colossians 1:5 and 6. The truth of the gospel. Which has come to you, Colossians, as it has also gone in all the world. And Paul in Romans 10. I say, have they not heard? Yes, indeed, their sound, about the gospel, has gone out to all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. Early church accomplished the message propagation. Ellen White says it this way. Acts of the Apostles, 593, paragraph 2. The commission that Christ gave to the disciples, they fulfilled. To every nation was the gospel carried in a single generation. She says on Signs of the Times, On the day of Pentecost, Christ's witnesses proclaimed the truth, telling men the wonderful news of salvation through Christ. The glad tidings were carried to the uttermost bounds of the inhabited world. Well, if they finished the Gospel Commission in the first century and Jesus still didn't come, should that give us a little bit of pause and say, if we just finish message distribution, could we have the same liability? That should give us pause, right? Well, God provided a solution. And it was in the terms of a message. So in the 1880s, remember where we at in the sequence of prophetic history now, right? We had the trumpet sounding, Day of Atonement, delay, time for more trumpets, more messages. Laodicea in the 1850s going forward. Remember all these messages keep going. They don't have a time frame where they stop. All these messages keep going right until the end. And then this other message in the 1880s, Jones and Wagner were studying and writing, beginning to speak, they were becoming trumpeters or messengers. You know, over 35 times in the 18th materials, Ellen White says the trumpet was given a certain sound. The trumpet was given a certain sound. That's that trumpet, that that fifth festival. Here's Ellen White speaking about Jones and Wanger. We have traveled all through the different places of, of the meetings that I might stand side by side with the messengers. A.T. Jones and E.G. Wagner of God, that I knew were his messengers. Now, Ellen White called herself a messenger, too, but imagine that it's just beautiful to see the humility. She's not keeping that status all for herself. She's saying, No, I'm with these guys who are God's messengers also, that I knew had a message for his people. I gave my message with them right in harmony with the very message that they were bearing. Why is this solution a message? Because we don't need messages so much, right? We need power is what we need, right? We just need to pray for the latter rain power. But if we were in the same condition as the people in the 1880s, doing the commands of God, have a sense of obligation merely, performing the duties of Christian life so I can get to heaven, does God want to ramp up the power on that experience? No, he wants to change the people, so that then when they're in a certain position, a certain attitude towards God, towards their fellow man, and they actually care about other people, then he can turn up the volume. A message is what changes the heart. That's why he sent a message. Those who since the Minneapolis meeting have had the privilege of listening to the words spoken by the messengers of God. Elder A.T. E. Jones, Professor Prescott, Brother E.J. Wagner, The trumpet was given a certain sound. The light has been shining upon justification by faith and the imputed righteousness of Christ. These are our themes. Now notice her themes, okay? What's the themes? Remember, keep in line all those, what was going on in the 1880s, these problems. What would be the solution to those problems? She says, these are our themes. Christ crucified for our sins. Christ risen from the dead. Christ our intercessor before God. And closely connected with these is the office work of the Holy Spirit, the representative of Christ, sent forth with divine power and gifts for men. What are the two things there, right? There's a message first Christ crucified, Christ resurrected, Christ as our intercessor, message, and then Holy Spirit power. Message of Christ, Holy Spirit power. We tend to want to skip the message part and get to the power part but it's the message that actually changes us the reason we're having a weekend conference here is because we need those messages to change our hearts if we just spent the next three days praying for power the only way God could send that power is if our hearts were changed first so these messages were meant from Jones and Wagner now today meant to change our hearts And the quote that Brian mentioned in the beginning, the Lord in his great mercy sent a most precious message. Notice there's two superlatives there, two adjectives. She doesn't just say the Lord sent a message. If, If God sent a message, should we pay attention to it? Absolutely, right? If he sent a precious message, would we say, yeah, we better pay attention. It's not just a message, it's a precious message. But if he said it's a most precious message, She's emphasizing this. She only uses that phrase one other time. One other context. I'll let you look it up. It's twice in all of her writing. she says, most precious message. One had to do with a message in the Old Testament. I'll let you look that up. Your homework. And the other one had to do with the message that Jones and Wagner preached. The Lord in his great mercy sent a most precious message to his people through elders Wagner and Jones. That's what we're here to study this week. This message, now, she's going to describe it, right? Let's just see how she describes it. Because there's a common persona out there that, well, 1888, they sort of, there was some argument about which horns were which countries, and then there was some discussion about the law in Galatians, and then, you know, that phrase, rights by faith, we all agree with that. Notice how she defines the message. This message was to do something. It was to bring more promptly before the world the uplifted Savior. Do do you see how that's the solution to the problem? If the problem is lukewarmness, if the problem is I ought to, I should religion, if the problem is on the motivational level of why I'm even doing Christianity, then I need to see the uplifted savior to, to warm my heart, to humble my heart, to lead me to repentance. This message was to bring more pride before the world, the uplifted savior, the sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. Now she's saying it again. Many Seventh-day Adventists had lost sight of Jesus. They needed to have their eyes directed to his divine person, his merits, and his change his love for he, the human family. This is the message that God commanded to be given to the world. What's she quoting there? Matthew 24, 14, right? She's saying what Jones and Wagner were saying is the message God commanded to be given to the world. Sometimes I hear the idea that, well, let's just study the Bible. We don't need Jones and Wagner. Now I am 100% on board for studying the Bible 100% of the time. She even says though that if we'd studied our Bibles, we wouldn't need her ministry. God sent these messengers because we didn't study our Bibles. We weren't listening to what she was saying. So he sent us another couple of messengers This is the message that God commanded me to give to the world. This is Matthew 20, 14. If we're doing evangelism, I've got my 20 Bible studies to give. I've got my 25-night evangelistic series. If I'm doing evangelism and it's not containing the elements of that message, something's missing. Now notice what she says now. She's going to tie together, notice closely, she's going to tie together those four trumpets, those four messages that we talked about. She's going to tie all of them actually together with this Jones and Wagner message. Notice how she does it. It is the third angel's message. Remember the, remember the sequence of festivals, right? We have the spring festivals, then we have the autumn festivals. First one, feast of trumpets, to announce the Day of Atonement, to, to, to move us forward in preparation for the Day of Atonement. It is the third angel's message, which is to be proclaimed with a loud voice and attended with the outpouring of his spirit in a large measure. Now, be creative. What's another term for, quotes, outpouring of his spirit in a large measure? You guys are so clever. Some people say like, well, she doesn't use the term latter rain, so it's not the latter rain. I don't know what else an outpouring of His Spirit in a large measure would be, but the latter rain. Now which messages have a loud voice in Revelation? The first angel, the third angel, and the fourth angel. Again, tying those trumpets, right? Feast of trumpets, day of atonement, should have been second coming, delay, more messages, more trumpets. Here's the message to Laodicea. The message given us by A.T. Jones and E.G. Wagner is the message of God to the Laodicean church. Remember that next trumpet after 1844 when there was a delay? Message to Laodicea. She's saying, hey, these guys are giving the message to Laodicea. The time of test is just upon us, for the loud cry of the third angel has already begun. And the revelation... Now, what? when you think of reading... The, remember, the third angel's message, Right? What, what are you reading there, right? Mark of the beast, smoke of the torment goes up, presence of the lambs, patience of the saints, faith of Jesus commands of God. That's what we're reading. Right? Now what is she saying about, what do we need to see in that message? The loud cry of the third angel has already begun in what? The revelation of the righteousness of Christ, the sin-pardoning savior. We need to see that in the third angel's message. This is the beginning of the light of the angel whose glory will fill the whole earth. What's she referring to there? The fourth angel of Revelation 18:1. We talk a lot about the three angels' messages. In fact, our church symbol has three symbol of three angels on it. But the work isn't finished until that fourth angel sounds. And what do we read earlier? That that's the last message to be given to the world is the fourth angel's message. It wasn't the end of the light? It was the beginning of the light. So she ties together all the trumpets. All those messages that we looked at, those six messages, first, second, midnight cry, third angel, Laodicea, fourth angel, loud cry. She ties all of those together and says, this is what God was presenting to us in the 18.8 message. For what purpose? So we'd have a new set of facts to assent to? No, because we needed a heart change. We needed to fall in love with Jesus. Showers from heaven of the latter rain, Now, I just went through and picked out some of the things that LI talks about, the the 18th message. Listen to this. A savior who is not afar off, but nigh at hand. That'll give you a sense of peace. A savior who is not afar off, but nigh at hand. There's chaos in the world. There's pandemics. There's social unrest. There's political unrest. But we have a Savior who's not afar off, but nigh at hand. We need to remember, we need to appreciate, we have a Savior who's not afar off, but nigh at hand. The simple story of the cross. The Lord was very precious. We beheld Christ, the matchless love of Jesus, His excellencies, the delights in Jesus, the paternal love and care of God for His children. This is the 18th message. This is what we want to communicate this week in all of its facets. The 18th Message is, is, is like a house with lots of windows and you look inside, wow, it's beautiful in there. We want to see what that is. And her response, every fiber of my being said amen. It's not just a theory. She said the character of Christianity, and this is 88 Materials. She's talking about the 18th Message. The character of Christianity is intensely practical. The kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. Now she goes on, and she's going she's to lay out the framework that the power of that message produced incredible things in Adventism. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but basically, almost all of our colleges and health institutions and publishing houses, all of this, this stuff, this growth, occurred in that 1880s, 1890s, early 1900s era as a result of this message. The influence of these messages, speaking about Jones and Wanderer's message, 18th message, has been deepening and widening, setting in motion the springs of action in thousands of hearts. And then she says this, bringing into existence institutions of learning, our college system, publishing houses, View and Herald, Pacific Press, all the things we were publishing, and health institutions. All these are the instrumentalities of God to cooperate in the grand work represented by the first, second, and third angel's message flying in the midst of heaven. I want to finish with a dream that Ellen White was given by her um, guide, as she uses the word. She was, in 1886, she was in Switzerland, and her guide took her to Battle Creek. The guide took her to Battle Creek. And now she's at Minneapolis in 1888 looking back on the vision that her guide gave her in 1886 in relationship to Battle Creek. And correlating what was going on in 1886 in Battle Creek with what was happening in Minneapolis in 1888. Notice this. Two years ago, while in Switzerland, I was addressed in the night season by a voice which said, follow me. I thought I arose and followed my guide. I seemed to be in the tabernacle at Battle Creek. And my guide gave instruction in regard to many things at the conference. I will give in substance a few of things that were said. I was told that there was need of great spiritual revival among the men who bear responsibilities in the cause of God. Then her guide speaks. There are but few, even of those who claim to believe it, that comprehend the third angel's message. And yet this is the message for this time. It is present truth. But how few take up this message in its true bearing and present it to the people in its power. With many, it has but little force. Said my guide, there is much light yet to shine forth from the law of God and the gospel of righteousness. This message, understood in its true character and proclaimed in the spirit, will lighten the earth with its glory. That's what that message is meant to do. It's meant to make us fall in love with Jesus and my prayer and our prayer as those who are presenting this week is that as you listen to the different facets of the 18th message you'll fall in love with Jesus you'll see where we fall in this long prophetic history and that we as individuals as a local church as a global church can take seriously it's time to be done with this and it's not going to occur just by getting busier. It's going to be, occur by having our hearts changed so that we fall in love with Jesus one more time. One final time. I ask you to bow your heads. Dear Heavenly Father, if we've looked at this history of how you've given us clues in the sanctuary service, giving us clues in the messages you've given this church, I confess for myself and for us, Lord, that we need you to take our hearts of stone and give us hearts of flesh. Forgive us for our lukewarmness. Forgive me for my lukewarmness. Forgive me for not treating the sacred things of your word, of your messages, as I ought to have treated Forgive me for being so busy with the things of this world that I give nominal time to the things of heaven. And I pray for myself, for each of us here, Lord, that this week will lead us to repentance and revival and reformation. In Jesus' name, amen.
2: Greetings, friends. Pastor Rob Bernardo here from Michigan's historic Battle Creek Tabernacle. What you've been watching is just one of the many presentations from the 2020 1888 National Conference called It's Midnight, and I would say that's a pretty appropriate title for the times in which we live, wouldn't you? You know, I think we're all looking for that fourth angel of revelation to come down upon this dark world with his light and glory. And I believe that is going to happen soon. Think about it, Jesus finest hour was also the hour of the power of darkness. And so it will be with his church in the last days. The greatest days for both his church and his gospel are yet to come. So keep studying, keep sharing. You'll see the web address below. There are many other presentations to watch. And so may God bless you. May you be found faithful when he comes.